you cannot find development partners and you cannot outsource. Like this has to be an essential thing that you're doing. And I think it's a, a really big mistake a lot of aspiring teams do. Well, just because it's holiday season doesn't mean we're going to be depriving you of your weekly episode. Matthew Grant here, partner at Instech London. Welcome back. Or if you've only just found us, delighted to meet you. But whoever you are and wherever you are, we've got another great guest for you today. Now, our roots at Instech began five years ago in a bar in London, hearing from a bunch of people in the early stages of building businesses that are going to change insurance. The term insurtech wasn't even yet common currency. Now, some of those fans have gone on to create what are becoming very successful businesses, and we too have grown. We've got 10 people now with us running a full-time business at Instech London, and we are working with insurers and technology companies around the world, still looking for founders, but many that have been around for decades. And we're keeping an eye out for those early stage companies and founders to have up on stage or join our events and podcasts. More of that coming shortly. This week, I am joined by Jared Lee. Jared and Ben Rose founded Superseed a few years ago. And as usual, we talk a bit about the business, but the main focus this week is to hear Jared's advice to founders and those of you running early stage businesses. Now, Jared shares a lot I can relate to too from seeing others build their businesses, but also what Robert and I have been experiencing as we have built out in Stack London. Definitely they're worth a listen, whether you are launching your own business or are working in an insurer and want to understand more about how you can help your technology partners be successful. As usual, no need to take notes though. We've written this all up for you on our website. Here we go. Jared, uh, really been looking forward to this discussion for lots of reasons. We'll come into some of those. We've known each other for I was going to say a long time. It's not actually a long time, but I think in basically changes in what you've done, it's quite a long time. And we're here partly to talk about Supersede, but also in a slightly sort of variation from what we normally do. You've offered to share some insights from your experience of building companies. So thank you very much for that and appreciate you taking the time. Absolute pleasure. So just a bit about Supersede. First of all, you started the company back in 2019 with Ben Rose. You yourself had had like about 12 years in broking before you, you went into that. The company, uh, for those that don't know, was originally called Riskbook. You then changed it to Superseed. And uh, you're offering a, a platform for joining together brokers and their clients around the world. Have I, have I missed anything critical in that my elevator pitch of your business? Yeah, ultimately what we're doing is, is we are a reinsurance focused technology company. Um, so that's looking primarily at how do we make the reinsurance process as efficient as possible for all parties? All of those pain points that I saw, that Ben saw when we were working in the industry that we've begun to tackle bit by bit, but you've, you've sort of hit the nail on the head with us being reinsurance centric on, on the placing platform. You were definitely a rising star, Paragon, Aon, Tiger Risk. You know, it's a big decision. I think I, yeah, that stage in your career, uh, or any stage to leave a company and set something up. So, so what was it that you gave you the confidence to go off and do something of your own and escape the safe, your know, monthly paycheck? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a big leap and not one that, that we took lightly. Um, ben and I first started having conversations about what we were looking at a year and a bit before we made the leap. Um, a lot of that was sort of planning and doing product assessment and, and sort of stress testing what we do. 
the first sort of piece of learning and advice to to early founders is or, or aspiring founders is to not hold your idea too preciously. If you're going to leave your well-paying corporate job with a pension and all of these benefits, um, you don't want to leave with a fragile idea. And it's better to stress test that and potentially break it or kill that idea whilst you have that job because you're still in this sort of pre-launch idea phase. So don't hold your ideas too too preciously in that sense and, and definitely be willing to put them through their paces and, and get fr- critique and feedback from people who really get the problems that you're trying to solve. So we have a number of early mentors, yourself included, who helped us really sort of stress test what we were trying to do and the approach we would uh, we were taking and and see if it's it sort of held water. Just so for anybody listening and just so they can get their head around you know, what they can expect to be coming in the next uh, 25 minutes or so, what sort of areas do you want to dig into in terms of sharing the benefit of your experience? Yeah, I think stress testing the idea is an important one. Um, I think finding your co-founding team is a really critical one. Um, and I think understanding your approach to how you want to sort of build the business where you're trying to take it and being willing to be flexible with not only the idea itself, but the approach you're taking are all sort of really critical elements of that, um, as well as maybe a, a bigger thread of how should, how should people think about making that leap and, and why, what should, what should, what should be the driver people use to, to make that leap? Great. Well, those are three really good themes. I've got some more questions for you that we'll, I'm sure we'll be able to slip in there. Uh, just before we go down that, though, just a quick sort of check in on how things are going with Superseed. Uh, any updates you'd like to share or things we should be looking out for in your own developments? Yeah, a, a lot of really exciting movements from us. We just launched our analytics proposition a couple of months ago. Um, we have a number of clients there, Markel being our largest um, who you may see some press releases on that, a number of others in the pipeline and on trials. So that's that's moving very, very quickly. Um, so we're accelerating in response to that. And on the placement side, we're, we're growing deal flow, we're growing broker adoption. So things we'll be announcing in the coming weeks, but uh, all all things moving in the, the right direction. So it's super exciting from us from that perspective. All right, I'm really, really pleased to hear that. And just so I don't forget to ask you at the end, I know at one point you were opening this up to beta testing or piloting it for people that wanted to try it out. Is that still an option for people? And if so, how, how can people actually get a direct view of what you're doing? Yeah, actually, um, Superseed's placement platform and network are entirely free. So anyone in the industry who wants to get a look or get involved with that can go to just superseed.com. There's a login there. You can set up your account and build your profile, um, respond to risks and look at things. So that part of it is totally free and open to anyone with sort of industry emails and things. So uh, if they're interested, they can do that or just reach out to me directly by email, um, just jared at superseed.com. Yeah, no, building that network is, is so important, isn't it? Good. Well, let's just start picking up on those themes. Uh, now, I just want to come back, come back in a minute to the, you're talking about building the, the product and, and validating that. But let's like start off with finding your founder. I mean, some investors actually only invest in companies where there are two co-founders. You and Ben work together, but you're sort of basically both on your experience and what you've seen elsewhere. What, what are your recommendations to people about finding a founder and then what to look for in a founder? And given that Robin Mertens and I are, uh, co-partners at Instead London, uh, we might also get some good tips from this, or maybe it's too late by now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this is, it's a huge journey, right? And I think the analogy of it being like a marriage is, 
is a bit extreme, but not radically up far off the truth. Um, you want someone who you respect immensely with the quality of their work and their commitment. But I think as you go through that journey, testing as well really early on, like what ideal results and outcomes are for you. Is it a business you want to build and take public? Is it something you want to do for a few years and try to sell it as quickly as you can? Like aligning on those ambitions and those strategies and your approach to everything else and having really frank discussions up front about where you want everything to go and who's going to do what is, is super, super important. And it builds a basis of, of trust and, and alignment from, from the offset, which is unbelievably important. You and Ben have known each other for a while, but what have you heard elsewhere? And I guess maybe this links into how you build your team around, you know, finding people who you may not know personally, but you know you've got a role to fill or you need a certain characteristic. You know, what have you seen as being the most effective way to, to meet those people? There's a variety of channels. When we found our CTO, uh, a, a gentleman named Jezen, uh, we spent several months meeting people and going out to, to dinners and, and interviewing people to try to get a sense of what that was. And, and sometimes you have a really clear outlook on that and other times you don't, but like the sort of relationship analogy, you know, when it's right, right. And you meet that person, they have, they're aligned with what you want and they, they see the sort of vision you have and they have their own perspectives on how best to tackle it. And, you know, some commitment and conviction around what that approach should be and and when we met Jezen it, it sort of began to click right away and and that sort of unlocked everything from our future hiring practices to alignment with the three founders and then that trust and belief in their capabilities is super important that you need to have that that ability to hand things off and trust that the work is coming back as the highest of quality um, and their commitment to the business and everything else, because it, it definitely can be a roller coaster and anchoring that founding team is super important. Yeah, I want to come back to that CTO one. You just reminded me when you described it as a marriage that it was great to see you at our summer party a couple of weeks ago. At one point here in the UK, it looked like the only way you could hold an event with, of over 30 people was to have a wedding. So Robin mm-hmm. and I were, were, were uh, threatening to get married so we could... <laughs> Invite them to the party. Fortunately, the UK government uh, relieved us of that necessity. But I think it's very true. It, it is a very deep relationship. And on this CTO one, I feel this is often the hardest decision and choice to make because there's such specialist skills you need in there. So, yes, you've got the character fit. But how, how do you – well, it's two things, really. So one is how do you ensure that the person's got the right technology? And then good you know, CTO-type roles, those people are going to be given attractive offers all over the place. So how, how do you make that work in terms of compensation, giving them the confidence what you're doing? You know, there's, there's two parts to that, aren't there, in terms of what you, you need to be able to do to get the right person? I see far too many founders or aspiring founders in, in the insurance reinsurance space who are outsourcing their tech. If you're going to build a technology company, you need to build a technology company and you cannot find development partners and you cannot outsource like this has to be an essential thing that you're doing um and i think it's a, a really big mistake a lot of aspiring teams do because you lose control over everything you send stuff out and there's there's this divorce of um the activity and the, and the sort of output that you're that you're trying to push push so um bringing that tech in-house is fundamentally important if you're trying to build a technology company and it really stood out to us, Jesen's conviction into the way we should approach our tech stack, the way he thought people were sort of 
building solutions that didn't really solve real problems because everyone else was doing it. These types of things really stood out and, and it gave us that conviction that, you know, as the business evolved, he'd be sort of the person who had that understanding of what we should do and, and how we should take our own approach to technology that gave us the security and all the things that, you know, are, are paramount to our business now. But he saw all of that right at the start from the comp perspective. I think if you're going to try to go bring someone in, recruit someone to lead technology who's not sort of bought into the bigger vision, you know, you're going to need to sort of go out with a huge salary and try to recruit them from some other senior leadership role. That's a harder sell. You want to find someone who wants to go on that journey with you and who wants to share in the upside. And I think, again, it's really important to to divide up the equity fairly amongst those three people. So there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, my commentator's written about this, but as a founding team, you have to be sort of aligned with with where you're going there and not a, well, I thought of the idea, therefore I own 95%, you can get five, right? It has to be a sense of this is a journey we're going to go on together because it's going to be 10 plus years. So, you, you know, you're, when you prepare yourself for that that road trip, um, that journey, there needs to be sort of an agreed position at the start. And I think the Y Combinator one, I think you're referring to, the, or, or these are also worth reading, the Paul Graham, who's one of the founders of Y Combinator, his essays he writes, he's got some excellent, excellent essays for yeah, startups. Um, and, and then just coming back to that, you just made a comment there about the, the technology, just to make sure we don't upset all the people out there who are listening who are with companies offering to build, build technology and <laughs> code and bind system. Uh, I'm assuming, but correct me if I'm wrong, th- th- there's a, there's different types of technology. If in your case, you're building a platform from scratch that's doing something innovative, uh, then yes, you need to build that technology in-house or at least you need to have a strong team that is then, you know, maybe start outsourcing some of the things to it. But for an organization that's looking at, you know, building out an MGA and the, the, the systems they're using are fairly standardized, you wouldn't suggest building those from scratch. I mean, that is an option, but there are choices you made. Is, is that, is that a fair statement? You're exactly right. In, in that case, I'm vehemently opposed to building, right? Because you're not a technology company. You're building an MGA or you're building a brand new startup broker or you're spinning up a new insurance company or a reinsurer. Those are cases you should absolutely be looking for a sort of best in class technology to build that business on. But those aren't technology companies. They might be technology sort of centric or technology driven firms, but they're different quite dichotomously from you know, and a technology company at its core. We're never going to build a broken company. We're never going to build a reinsurance company. It's not what we do. So for us, owning and driving our tech is is critical. But if a company's primary business model is being a broker, you should be looking for companies that help you become as efficient as possible there, but not building things in-house. Right. Well, Andre Simons and Craig Oliver from Genesis, if you're listening, uh, please note I've made sure that we didn't completely carve you out of the <laughs> building uh and that great so just want to come back to you you're talking a bit about this let's talk a little bit more about proving the point so my question for you is you're for someone that's employed as you were you want to go out and start to test the proposition before you mm. you give up your job it's quite tricky to do that isn't it because your combination you've got to spend time on it you've got to do the research to a certain extent you've got to reveal a little bit of the fact you're going to leave and start up a company so how, how did you do that and what's your advice to people you know how do you get enough confidence before you you leave your employer without you know, upsetting your your employer. So you leave earlier than you might have planned to. Yeah. Um, a lot of evenings and a lot of, a lot of weekends um, sort of getting coffees and drinks and, and things with various people and, and picking their brains around the bigger approach and the thinking around it. 
we are fortunate that we live in an industry that loves being social and loves sort of going out and then having those conversations and, and thinking about those things through. But you have to find time for it because getting that wrong is, is the end. And, and you have to be willing to sort of go out and validate and test those things out. Um, the other thing that's probably worth bearing in mind in this conversation is if you need to seek any outside funding, you're never going to get investment whilst you're employed. Very few investors will say, great, you have a full-time job. I'm going to give you X hundred thousand pounds or X million pounds, and then you can quit your job and do this thing. They want to see commitment up front. So using that time whilst you're employed to really put the idea through the paces, because you don't want to jump out only to then realize there's nothing there. Um, some of those conversations turn into angel investments, and, and they can help get this earliest stage off the ground. But if, if you don't do that, if you're too protective of your idea, it's a really bad sign for when you get into the market and you actually start getting those challenges from investors and things. Yeah, and I guess the, the, the flip side is also true that you get validation from investors. You know, you need hope they do their own due diligence as well. Then that's a great way of identifying and at least is the vision right. You won't necessarily go into the detail, but presumably that was that was part of what you did. And, and just on that one, again, for people listening and your own experience, where should people look to get to get the investment if you're kind of pre-revenues? I think you were and you need some seed funding. How do you how do you find those kind of people that might be willing to, to make the investments? It's another part of the journey that's very slow and very long in the earliest days. Um, the one of the big learnings that we had was we were under the assumption that right out of the gates, you could go to all these in venture capital firms and, and they'd be pouring money in. And as InsureTech has grown over the last number of years to be quite a significant area of investment, the perception is it's relatively easy to get investment into early stage companies. But in reality, a lot of those venture firms are looking for revenue generating deal ideas with a lot of product market fit and proof points. So what you'll find is the best point of early uh, engagement is angels. And then it's finding people who can be an angel who can also validate the idea. So if you're trying to do something in cyber, as an example, people who are underwriting or broking or writing business in that sector who are then willing to invest a little bit of, of their, you know, uh, savings or investments into you helps validate you to future investors, institutional investors, but also helps validate what you're doing where they're so bought in and so aligned with the way you're positioning it that they're willing to part with some some hard-earned money in hopes that that could help help this idea come to fruition and then over time hopefully give them a, a sizable return as well. And, and you've got a, a strong network and, and got the credibility, but yeah, yeah, I know you also, as you said, you had to work hard to do that. I think one of the things you did, you did a, a kind of pitch, you ran your own pitch night. I think you probably paid for some money behind the bar yeah. and invited some people you felt were sort of good good candidates for that. How, how did that will come together and how did that work out it was an idea that um i received from another founder and the reason i wanted to do this this discussion with you but when when i was going on this sort of finding out who those investors are one of the other areas to do it is meet with loads of other founders see how they did it because everyone's journey is slightly different and one of these founders that i'd met um said that they ran one of these events and they found it really really helpful so we we spun it up and, and did something relatively similar um, we booked a, a room in, in central London and invited like 20 odd people. 
a, a few of those people invested in us. A few of those people made introductions. The end result was it helped us close our 500K pre-seed round uh, with some institutional investors as well as with, with some angels. So uh, a really good result from that. But it definitely had a little bit of ponying up some of the money you were trying to save for your inevitable having no salary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had someone that did that and it wasn't you, but they, their version of this was they put on a big dinner and they let it be known to people that they were expected to invest $25,000, probably in the US, uh, if, they're, if they're going to accept the invitation for dinner. Uh, I don't know how well that worked. But, but when you're doing that, of course, you've got to also manage the, the compliance aspects, the regulatory side. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about you know, what you did there? And I, and I know from the conversations I had with you and, I, and seeing how some of this worked, it seemed to be quite an efficient process. But what's your suggestion to people when you've got to get into all of that paperwork and what's the smoothest way to do that? Again, we benefit massively from companies who built tech to make this easy. There's a great company here in London called Feed Legals who does sort of all the legal work that you might need to sort of get these things off the ground and do this compliantly. Because, um, again, I think they saw this position where a lot of really early stage companies are trying to raise money. But like the 7000 pound lawyer bill to like raise your round becomes quite um, quite prohibitive. So there's a firm here in London that's doing that. I think there's a similar one that's come out of YC in the US that has helped sort of spin these things up. But there are solutions around. I would, I think, don't look directly for the big law firms to help you with that. There's other solutions for early stage tech companies that are great. Um, but it's, it's similar to this sort of movement of tech across other sectors. We benefit massively from AWS, for example. We don't need to buy servers from IBM or build up all this tech. We can leverage a lot of these things that make it really easy to start a company where maybe five years ago you wouldn't have had that, that same experience. Generally, the big law firms are really expensive. There are also a couple like Norton Rose do their insurathon. I know they're doing it again this year where they, they allow people to come in early stage and they actually get credits towards legal support for doing that. But yeah, I mean, I, having seen what seed legals are doing, it is a, it's a great example of if you're building a tech business, you should use tech to enable you. And on, yeah. on that point, I, I, one of the articles you wrote recently, you kind of laid out just was a couple of lines about some of the tech you use internally to make yourself efficient things like Slack and GitHub. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that in terms of just operationally now? Yeah, it's really busy time being a founder. You can spend your whole time just talking to clients or fundraising. You know, how, how do you just run the business in a way that's efficient? Yeah, um, just before that, I, I would like to, to give a shout out to the Norton Rose Fulbright Insurathon. We were fortunate enough to win it a couple of years ago. Um, so as we scale the business, we have a great relationship with their team. So absolutely promote that them and that event. I think it's a fabulous one. With sort of operationalizing our business, you always want to be looking just a little bit ahead of where you are. So as for us, it was setting up Slack and, and getting GitHub aligned. Obviously, GitHub's where all the engineers are going to write code and, and post um, their submits. Um, but you're also having it where you start building up like your G Suite structure. And we built up a confluence sort of page for all of our data being captured in a singular page. So even though in the early days it might feel a little bit like overkill, what you don't want to be doing is scrambling with legacy data organization. And you have always a little bit of that. But we tried to look, OK, if, if we're four people now, what do we need when we're eight or ten people? And, and now that we're 18 people, what should we begin to look like as we move towards that being 25, 30 people? Because that gives you a little bit of an idea of how to make that transition as as painless as possible. There's always learning curves and growing pains, 
But the more you sort of look just a little bit further than where you are, the better you're able to structure the organization and put things in place. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, we've seen the same thing. I mean, we're all a little bit cautious about overuse of spreadsheets, but things like using uh, Google Sheets and Google Docs where you can share them and collaborate. And that, in my view, is you push these things as hard as you can until you find you really can't use them anymore. And by that stage, you know what you need to use as another system, but you can get quite a long way and process actually often guess it's often seen as a dirty word, but my, my experience when you're building a business, if you can get a system and a process in place and learn from it, you can just be so much more efficient and figure I, stuff out each time. Yeah, I think that sentiment applies to hiring as well. If, if you push the current process, the current team and, you know, the current systems to the point where they're starting to no longer be fit for purpose, you have a very good indication as to what you need for the new version of that. And the same thing is true with hiring. If you sort of push the team and push everyone, so it's like, okay, we have something breaking here. You have a very clear understanding of the, the needs of the business and the profile you need to solve that specific pain point. But if you just sort of go, oh, we should hire someone in finance, but no one really knows why. You just think you should have one. Right? It's, it's harder to fill that role and build that profile. But if you've realized, no, because of all of these billing issues or all of these specific nuances and complexities, we really need a finance person to tackle that. You know what to interview for, you know, you know what to test for, you know what to look for, for that person because you're solving a pain point rather than just filling a, a void, if you will. Yeah. And when you get them, you run out and want to hug them and say, come in, we need you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, we've all, I mean, the other thing about recruiting I've seen is, 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 is again, just the time, you know, how fast you do it and how much focused you are. So we're building a team and yes, our version of that is, you kind of want to interview people three times. And when we were bringing in, in our graduate level, we wanted to make a decision within a week because the good people are so sought after. And I think that's part of it as well, which is you can have a luxury of, or the feel is like a luxury of not having to accelerate that process, but then you just get a little bit sloppy and you lose people. Whereas if you actually force yourself to do things fast, but you still follow the your own process and standards, then you can actually have a really good outcome. And as you say, you then need to build on that, but at least everybody understands what they're doing. So, Joe, just coming on to a couple other ones, let's talk a little bit more about what happens once you've started the business. You've now started to bring together your application. You've got your team. You've got some money to build a tech. What, what happens next? And how do you balance that you know, chicken-egg scenario, You kind of, particularly what you're doing? You need people on both sides of the trade to make this thing work. It's always about finding those sort of key early sort of promoters, not just adopters who will use it, but people who get behind you on the bigger vision and get excited about where you're taking it. Because there's a few things that always happen, and I think it's maybe more painful and more poignant um, for B2B companies, and especially in our industry, is the threshold for an MVP is very, very high. Right? If if I'm if I'm MVPing Uber. All I need to do is that if you text this number, I can send a car to you and I could I could drive over there. Right. When your clients are enterprise, like the, the sort of level of complexity and sophistication that the product needs is very high. So the way we approached it was we found some early partners who believed in where we wanted to take it, who wanted to get on the journey to help us sort of build out some of those early steps and give us early feedback and were willing to work with us and work with the tools whilst it was still like pre-launch kind of beta phase. So so that part is is tough because a lot of times you're doing that without getting revenue from them because they're not going to pay you, you know, sizable enterprise SaaS fees for, you know, the earliest version of your thing kind of working. 
Um, but it helps really guide the roadmap and really focus the, the build towards the things that will move the needle. Um, and then we did other things. We opened up our, our beta really early on. So anyone could, could sign up and explore and give us feedback and test things out. So we were very open and transparent about the journey there. So those two things helped enormously as we get more sophisticated now. And as we scale, we no longer have that issue in the same way. Um, but it's in the earliest days, especially for enterprise sort of companies, there's definitely some, some growing pains there. Um, if, if, if you're, starting a company in a market that has an SME space or a small medium enterprise level company space, it's a bit easier because there's the smaller, smaller firms, again, have a bit more of a threshold to, to work with things that aren't quite as polished. But for us in the insurance space, obviously, most of our clients are enormous, you know, Fortune 1000 level firms, FTSE 500s, et cetera. So, um, we we didn't have the benefit of tackling the the two person, you know, accountancy firms or similar. Yeah, so there's a lot in there. So just make sure MVP is minimal viable product for anybody that's not familiar with that. And then, yeah, these challenges with big companies. We should touch on that a little bit in a minute about either buying decisions because things happen much more slowly when you're doing that. Could you just take us through a use case? You don't need to mention company names unless you you feel you can. But just to sort of put some sort of reality around what you were actually selling and selling to people. So you're going out there in the early days, you've got your proposition. What were you offering and what did you need commitment from to for people to actually start to generate revenue and validate the proposition? Some of it is helped by that, the earlier comments I'd, I'd made around really vetting it before you sort of building anything. So you're sort of getting an idea of where are the biggest pain points that people feel and, and how might you service that. So, so part of that is eased a little bit through that. But when we would reach out to companies, we always, and we still do this today, even as we scale, we still do this where you don't reach out to them with a the sales pitch. And you don't reach out to them saying, oh, here's what we do. We should, I want to show you a demo about how awesome we are. It's always discovery focused. You're a broker in this line of business or in this class. I'd love to set up a call to understand your business, what your ambitions are, how you plan to grow, where you face challenges. And if from that there's an opportunity for us to do something together, that's really helpful. But if they kind of go, oh, we do it this way, I always send it just to this one person in. And there's not an alignment with what we're, where we fit. That's also fine. We can always circle back to those conversations later. Um, but it has to be about them. I think the other thing with, with founders a lot of times is they make this mistake that here's my thing. Isn't it awesome? Don't you want it? And it has to be about aligning with that customer where they're, where they're feeling a pain or a pinch in their business, what they're currently doing to solve it. And, and then using that as a way to guide that product development and roadmap sometimes in those conversations they're very closely aligned with what you're already doing it's like oh well we have this does that would this help to solve some of these points you pointed out it's never going to solve everything especially when you're early stage it's never going to solve their whole suite of problems we might be able to tackle a couple of them and they might be early customers or early advocates to help you get on the journey for those specific pain points um but but it always has to start with understanding that specific customer that specific user and about what they face that is such an important point and i would say if people don't take away anything else from this that to me is a point i also make frequently which is much more successful going in there asking research type questions and if someone's interested then you've got a sales discussion than going in there trying to have a sales discussion and, and you're 
if you don't get it right straight away or you find the exact need, the door is not going to be left open. We had one the other week where we had a discovery call where we weren't quite sure if it was we were aligned on a value proposition or a, a need that they had. We had a second call with new people and they were still kind of a, we think there might be something here. And it was the third call since, again, all discovery centric that was a, oh, this is a specific problem that you have, which is why they kept, they couldn't quite articulate it. We weren't quite aligning with how we were messaging and discussing it and discovering it. But after three of these calls with a single, with a single client was where we finally cracked. Like that's where we, that's the specific problem that you have that you're trying to get out to us. And, but it is its patience and its, its persistence in, in this sort of process. There's a few things you mentioned in there. Yeah, one is it's, it's a single company. It's very rarely a single individual. So you've got to find that, that right person. And then I wanted to ask you a little bit about what, what recommendations do you have to help people accelerate the decision making process? Even if sometimes that decision is, we're not going to work with you. So like, you know, stop wasting time with them. But what have you done to kind of get away from that whole sort of death by POC and team people have to sign it off or the innovation team can support it, but they can't get buying from the business. There are lots of reasons why people struggle to, to get relationships. There's one thing you mentioned that I want to sort of touch, touch on just quickly is um, the value of getting to a no, whether that's in fundraising or with clients is as important uh, you know, and I think a lot of founders, they love this idea of like, oh, they said maybe or come back next week and it, and they treat it like a really hot lead. But being able to embrace and sort of push for them to say, this isn't a fit right now and move on. So you can focus on the clients that are hot leads or are in fact moving in the right direction. So I think getting to a no is as important. We've recently brought on a head of sales to help do the buying cycle process more effectively within these big organizations, within any insurance or reinsurance company or broker. You're going to have numerous stakeholders with numerous um, political positions within their company and various agendas and priorities and everything. So navigating this is more difficult. What we've found to be successful for us is to get buy in and interest from people near the top who have some sort of internal um, initiative or, or pr- project of trying to get off the ground or they're trying to showcase the innovation of the firm. Again, in this discovery process, understand and align with where they're trying to uh, go and what they're trying to accomplish and then use that to get um, introductions down the chain um, into the other sort of decision makers, but also asking up front who's involved. For you to decide on how to move forward with this, who else would we need to sort of get agreement from? Asking that question up front and getting them to at least start thinking about, oh, we'd have the legal team come in and we definitely would need to go through the IT procurement people and we'd need to do this. You begin to build out a bit of a map of everyone you need to check off. Thanks again. Some really great nuggets in there. Another question I had for you was around the networks you used to build your community and you can probably see where I'm going for this uh, and, and I kind of related question to that is sort of this global so UK versus the rest of the world but it, what have you found has been useful for you in building the business and finding the people that are your clients and supporters in this early stage yeah we've taken a, a multifaceted approach here um, we engaged very heavily with the under 35s here in London the under 40s in New York and in Bermuda they're amazing organizations already. So always tapping into where are there hubs of people who are kind of in the same space that already exist and partnering with and tapping into those those groups is super, super helpful. 
we've spun up a couple of our own. We're doing, we do other sort of reach out projects and engagement initiatives across our community as we grow. But there are pockets of people who, who are already doing interesting things. You guys are a fabulous example of this, right? A number of years ago when you first set up Instech, it was kind of like, this is a thing that we think people are beginning to get excited by. Right? And, and the speed by which you've gotten that following is a real indication of there's a lot of people who are interested in these same ideas and the sort of where this space goes. And if you don't feel there's a sufficient group already in existence, there's an opportunity there to build those communities up and, and gain that following and connect them around various topics. And you've seen similar things with, with blockchain and similar where people really want to dive into this specific piece of technology. There's always communities that are either existing or you can create to, to further drive these. You're talking to us now from in the Lloyd's lab. You're talking about communities. How, how has that been? You know, my, my experience and what I've heard from people, it's been a very good process. Uh, I would say it's been a little bit spotty sometimes in terms of the market taking advantage of organizations on the lab. And that's no criticism of Ed Gaze and the team. So I think they're doing a fantastic job. But, but you know, what's your honest opinion about, you know, both how well is the lab working? You know, frankly, and how well is the market taking advantage of these organizations that are you know, there to engage with them? The lab has has made some massive steps in recent years. Earlier on, the way they approached it was like really new and emerging companies. And it was all kind of idea stage propositions in, in the first couple of cohorts. And as a result, people would get excited by things, but then only to see that they were sort of a bit underdeveloped at, this, at the time. What we've seen more recently is the labs reached out to firms that are further on the journey who have, you know, paying clients and a live product in production and, and all these types of things, which is driving engagement more and more. We had fabulous engagement amongst a, a number of, of syndicates, a few who are on trials with us and things now. So we had a huge amount of uptake there. But part of that onus is on the startup itself. I think a lot of startups We'll go into something like the Lloyd's Lab or Plug and Play, another one we went through, and kind of go, great, I'm here, and I'm just waiting for them to flock to me. And in reality, you have to sort of push and make the most of that and reach out to those teams and drive those conversations. The Lloyd's Lab is a, is a fabulous example where all of the people who are the mentors and the syndicates who are involved are doing this on like 5% time, perhaps. Like they have a couple hours once or twice a week that they're willing to sort of look at stuff. You have to give them a compelling reason to dedicate more time to you and engage with you and work with you on stuff. And, and this idea that you should just go, Oh, we're, we're in the cohort. We're just wait till ever all these leads land on our lap isn't going to work. So you have to be a bit more sort of aggressive and pushy and take advantage of being a part of this, part of these programs. So Joe, just before we wrap up, uh, you know, we've been thrilled to have your support. In Instead London, I really appreciate it. Companies at the early stage come through like that, and it's been great to see your journey as well. But it'd be great just in your own words, you know, what, what was it that motivated you to support us as a corporate member? We have been massive supporters of what you guys have been doing from the onset. Ben and I were regular attendees when we had our corporate jobs, and I think it was as we sort of went to learn and understand the space has been immensely valuable to us. And when we we take think about where we were growing as a team finding those like-minded individuals. Uh, our chief actuarial officer, Paul Bassan, uh, we actually met him at one of the InsTech events. We, we'd got a chance to speak, and and he was very keen on what we were doing and the sort of shout-outs you do, all these sort of things. It just helps this these communities thrive. And and as we continue to, to grow and to scale, um, 
we very much believe that there will be opportunities to further find talent and network and relationships across that community of sort of innovation driven people in our industry. So huge fans of, of what you guys are doing. Although I, I think you're going to have to drop the London moniker at some point here as you guys continue to grow into other geographies as I'm seeing. So but just the Instech global or similar in the near future. More of the world. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, 30% of our members are now global. We're doing an event in the US in, in November as well. So yeah, certainly global, uh, London. Some, some people like the London edition. Some people make it simpler with that. But no, thank you very much for your support. And on that, we are coming back to real face to face events, Instinct Analog, I think we're going to call it, uh, back in the steel yard from the 14th of September and then the 11th of October. And as you said, there's a chance to come along. We welcome Startups. Our definition of startup is less than three years old in terms of getting in for free, uh, or maybe two years old. Um, but yeah, it'd be great to see you know the next generation beyond you guys coming up and having a chance to talk about what they're doing. People love those early stage companies. You know, you you you've still got your enthusiasm, so it wasn't suggested it's going away. But yeah, that, the really early founder is just fantastic, and some of the ideas are a bit wacky, but hey, it helps us all stay creative. Yeah. Um, so so before we wrap up, uh, Jared, anything we should be looking out for? from uh, Superseed in, in the next uh, next few months you want to alert people to? There will be there will be a number of things. Um, some some product evolution things that will be launching uh, which we're super excited about and there will be some massive clients getting announced over the coming weeks and months as well that are sort of wrapping up trials going through as I mentioned sort of all these various stages but we have huge buy-in and commitment from so this is this is heating up very, very quickly for us and our pace is accelerating across a, a variety of verticals. Nothing I can sort of tease too much out, but you're, you're going to see it in a very exciting next few months from us. Brilliant. Well, yeah, I look forward to you coming back and talking to Sabatic. So thanks very much for your time. Thanks for your support. You know, again, thanks for sharing all those insights. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to help the next, you know, the next round or some existing round of founders out there with some, you know, some really useful tips to be successful. Yeah, of course. Anytime. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Matthew. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you are a startup and want to introduce yourselves, please get in touch with us. Hello at instec.london. Or if you are now a company with clients, revenue or funding, and would like to know more about what we can offer you as a corporate member of Instec London, please do contact me, Matthew Grant, via LinkedIn or hello at instec.london. And of course, all you need to know about what we're up to, including our face-to-face events coming back soon on our website, www.instec.london. London.